righty, everybody. Go ahead, take your Bibles out. If you got them on your phones, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. Acts chapter 12. If you're looking for the book of Acts, it's the fifth book in the New Testament, and the chapters go in order. One, two, three, four, all the way up to 12. So you can find that. Acts chapter 12. To pray effectively, you've got to know your Bible. To pray effectively, you must know the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Elijah. Elijah was a prophet of God. God worked through Elijah to do phenomenal, miraculous things. Uh, One particular moment uh, from Elijah, we're told that actually when he prayed, that the heavens uh, stopped giving rain for three whole years. I want you to think about that for a second. Here's a man in the Old Testament. Uh, We're told in the book of James, listen to how James describes Elijah. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. Imagine Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So what that means is there was nothing supernatural about the man Elijah. He was like you. He was like me. He was a man of faith. He was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. How is that possible? You know, we read these stories in the Old Testament, and sometimes we gloss over them, and we think that they are supposed to be chalked up into the category of mythology or fairy tale. That's not how it was written. This is a story in the Old Testament about a man named Elijah who actually oversaw a legitimate drought for three and a half years in the Middle East, of which he was the primary executioner of in the sense that he prayed for it to happen. Where did Elijah get the audacity to pray a prayer like that? Well, it turns out it was from the Word. It was from Scripture. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 to 17, a passage that Elijah would have had very good access to. He would have known this Scripture. It reads this in Deuteronomy. Take care, lest your heart be deceived. This is God speaking to the people of God. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. And the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. There's a, a famous teacher named Derek Prince. He teaches much, as much on the topic of spiritual warfare and prayer. And he, he, he says this. He says, when the word of God and the spirit of God come into alignment in our prayers, then the same power that brought the universe into being is flowing through us. When the Word of God and the Spirit of God come into alignment in our prayers, then the same God that brought the universe into being is working through us. Why was Elijah able to shut up the heavens? Because he had read the Scriptures, he knew what was happening, and he looked out over the people of God who were sinning exactly as God had said, if you sin in this way, here's what will happen. And then Elijah called on Deuteronomy, and he said, Lord, make your promise true. A man with a nature like ours, and the heavens were shut up for three and a half years. Did you know, Christian, that you are what the Bible calls a kingdom of priests? A kingdom of priests. That means you rule and you reign through prayer. Now, that sounds interesting. When we think of the term priest, many of us think of like something like the Catholic Church, where priests are kind of like an official professional clergy. And that's actually not how Scripture speaks about the language of priests. It says that you, as a follower of Christ, are a kingdom of priests. You're part of the kingdom of priests. And that you rule and you exercise authority that God's given you by the power of the Spirit within you. At your fingertips, through prayer... At your fingertips, 
through prayer is the power to shake nations, is the power to move mountains, is the power to tear down strongholds, to overcome significant obstacles in your life, in your family's life, in your church's life, in the life of your city and beyond. See, if we understood what it meant to be a kingdom of priests, I think we would pray very differently. I think we would understand what the nature of prayer actually is. It's only when we actually understand the the scriptures that we can actually step into some of the most broken places. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. This is incredible news. The entryway to Christianity is this belief that Jesus Christ took our sin upon on the cross. Every one of us is a debtor to God. Every one of us has fallen so deep into sin, you only have to begin to be authentic and honest with yourself to recognize the depth of sin in your own life. We've rebelled against God, but God in his mercy has grace on us. He has grace on us because he says, if you look on Jesus Christ, your debt is paid before God. And he now looks on you, not as a rebel anymore, but as a son and a daughter of the king who's had the full debt forgiven. That's grace. You know what it feels like to be someone who's received grace? Knowing that you were destined for eternity apart from God, and the only reason that you have a right to stand in this place and raise holy hands to our king is because of what Christ has done on the cross. That's incredible. But the good news doesn't just stop with what he's done for you for all eternity. He then equips you to be a part of the unfolding and unveiling of God's kingdom across this planet, primarily through prayer. It's pretty powerful. We continue through the book of Acts today. We've been going verse by verse through this book, and we come to Acts chapter 12 today. Now, Acts chapter 11 which we got to last week, Uh, we talked about the church in Antioch. Well, two weeks ago we talked about this, the church in Antioch, this incredible multi-ethnic church, first to send off missionaries, first to take up an offering for people who are in trouble, the first people ever to be called Christians, incredible church. Acts chapter 12 and 13 are kind of the middle ground of the entire book of Acts. After chapter 13, we are on to the apostle Saul planting churches all throughout the Mediterranean. 12 and 13 are this kind of middle ground territory where we're dealing with uh, understanding the reality of spiritual warfare and how the church responds in the midst of spiritual warfare. Now, when I say spiritual warfare, what do I mean? Spiritual warfare is the reality that behind every difficulty a Christian faces in life, whether it's corporately as a church or individually as a man or a woman of God, there exists two realities. The reality that we can see with our eyes. So when you read through the book of Acts, There's all sorts of stories of what actually happened in history, how the early church got planted, who were the pastors, who were the deacons, how they took care of the food distribution. That was what they could see with their eyes. But there's always a second reality of what's happening behind the scenes. And and at times, the pages of Scripture kind of peel back that curtain for us and allow us to see spiritually what's taking place behind the physical reality that we see And what we discover is that there's a great spiritual world taking place around us. And when we refer to spiritual warfare, it's the reality that there does exist an enemy to the church, not just one, but a whole host. And they hate seeing a church operating effectively. They they hate seeing a church operate in unity. They hate seeing new people put their faith in Jesus. They love tearing families apart. They love working their way through marriages and just destroying marriages. They love working their way through communities and causing division and people to fall out of relationship with each other. But in the church, in the church, we recognize these two levels of reality, and we recognize that God has then given the tools to operate in both of them effectively. To disregard one 
is to misread what the actual problem is. You've got to have an accurate picture of both. Today is one of those chapters where the pages get pulled back and we can kind of see into that second realm a little bit. I want to look at three insights for us. How we as Christians, individually and collectively, function in the very real spiritual battle that's before us. If you want to grow in your faith, you got to recognize there's a spiritual battle for your soul and for the health of your church. How do we do this well? Three insights today from Acts chapter 12. Number one, earnest prayer is the primary weapon of Christian spiritual warfare. Earnest prayer is the primary weapon of Christian spiritual warfare. Oh, how we get this wrong. We tend to be people of action. We're Americans. There's a, there's a culture in America, in the general area, in, in general, the culture of the country that we like to do. We like to get things done. This is the trap I fall into. I like to accomplish things. Earnest prayer is the primary weapon of spiritual warfare. Read with me Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. About that time, Herod and the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. When he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Pause right there. What's going on in this passage? Who was Herod? There's this guy named Herod who's laying violent hands on some who belong to the church. So far what we've seen in Acts is persecution. People are dying in Acts for their faith in Jesus. But it's largely not because of the Roman government. It's largely persecutors like Saul who were rising out of the Pharisaical party of Judaism at the time. This is a new shift where the Roman authorities begin to actually kill Christians. This is new persecution, a whole new level of persecution for the church, one that would be repeated up until the day we're in right now. By the way, last 10 years, the most amount of Christian martyrs in all of history. So this is where that started, at the hands of governments. Who was Herod? We see that first he killed James. Who's James? James was not the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. James was one of the inner three apostles of Jesus, disciples. You remember James and John? They were brothers. James, John, and Peter were the three inner disciples of the 12. And there would often be times in the life of Jesus where Jesus would call James, John, and Peter to kind of special counsel. Remember the transfiguration where Jesus revealed himself in all of his glory and he shone like the sun in front of them up on top of the mountain and Moses and Elijah appeared next to him? That was with James, John, and Peter. James is killed, beheaded by Herod. Herod was the nephew of the man who tried Jesus during Jesus' trial. There's some relationship here. He, and, uh, he, he had it within his council. He, he desired to keep the Roman peace. So throughout the area where Herod was overseeing the Roman government, he was overseeing the, the place where the Jews lived. And there was a period called the, the Roman peace. And the Jews were a particular difficult crowd for the Roman authorities to govern because they really didn't wholly respond to the Roman government. They had their own God. And the Jews were allowed to go kind of on their own and not necessarily submit. And there was a loose oversight that Herod kept. And so in this passage, he's trying to keep the peace with the Jews. He doesn't want to lose his territory. And he quickly realizes, wait a second, 
When I killed James, my territory rejoiced greatly. So he arrests Peter, puts him in prison. Why didn't he kill Peter right away? Well, we're told it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was Passover. The Jews would have been completely irate if someone would have been killed during the Passover, if they would have been executed. And so he pauses and he puts Peter in prison, intending to kill him just like he had killed James immediately once the Passover is over. Now, I don't know how to preach this reality to the American church. I don't know how to help us get into the emotional reality that these few passages must have had, the burden it placed on the early church. The only way I can do this is to give us a terrible hypothetical. But I want you to just imagine for a moment if the authorities came and they took me and they put me in prison. I'm your pastor, I'm your brother in Christ, you know me, you know my family, you know my children. And you didn't know what was gonna happen next. Now, I I hate this example, (laughs) I'm picking on myself here. But if that were to happen right now, they came in, they took me, they left. Now you're, I don't mean leaderless, there are other leaders in the church, Sincer and Darren are are elders as well, but your, your pastor is no longer here, he's in prison. How would this church respond? What, what would happen? What would happen in your heart if you knew that level of persecution was happening to me? How would you respond when you went home at night with your family? Around the globe today, that's the norm in many places. Through China, we've seen almost every pastor is put in prison for, for believing in Jesus and for proclaiming him alone. That would be the norm. And so pastors in China, what they're doing right now is equipping their church for after they go to prison. That's the job of the pastor, equip the church for after they go to prison. I wonder how we would respond there's this amazing book called Heavenly Man. I read this book. It's a biography of uh, Brother Yoon, who was a man in China who God used tremendously to develop the underground church. The church in China is the largest church in the world right now, and it completely grew underneath persecution, much like the first century church grew under persecution. And Brother Yoon was one of the, the guys who the Lord really used to start this off. He tells this moment in story. He had been in pr- this moment in his story. He had been in prison for a number of years at this point. And then he says this story. Him and this other Christian leader, a guy named Brother Huang, uh, who had recently been killed in prison. Read this. Nine prisoners from the men's and women's prisons in Nanyang were to face public humiliation and trial that day. I was one of them. We were driven around the town while our crimes were read out on a loudspeaker. Just now he responded. I was so full of joy at the chance of being paraded in front of people for the sake of Jesus Christ. My heart was bursting with gladness. On the way to the trial, I couldn't contain myself. Ready for the most shocking sentence in this entire book? I had just seen Brother Huang promoted to glory, and eternity was so real to me. I don't think we understand those words. But there's something very biblical about it. There's something about the nature of what it means to be a Christian, that we don't find our highest identity or vision for life here in the things of this world, in the materials of this world, the material gain of this world. But rather, we, we, we look at this world, we see what it is, we rejoice in the work of God, overcoming evil, establishing the kingdom of Christ, but our longing is for the life to come. This is what's called an eternal perspective. I just seen Brother Huang promoted to glory and eternity was so real to me. I don't think we even begin to get this. But there's something about this I have to preach today. 
What does it mean for us as a people to be so fixated on Jesus Christ, his glory, and what he has accomplished for us on the cross that we could begin to understand, Brother Yoon, celebrated in being publicly mocked for the name of Jesus? James is is killed. Peter's in prison. The church is powerless. What can they do? They're this smaller sect within Judaism at the time. They have no actual power. They don't have leaders in politics at this point. They're not living in a democratic republic where you can get people to, to go and make, you know, make new laws. They're, they're powerless within the larger world of Judaism. They're powerless within the Roman government. So what do they do? They gather together and they shake the heavens through prayer. They earnestly pray. Why? Because they recognize that actually the church gathered in prayer has more authority than Herod himself. And so they pray as if God is about to respond. They pray as if God's about to respond to their prayer. They eagerly expect, they call on the name of Jesus to overcome the challenges that are facing the church, the things that would hinder the reality of Jesus Christ being extended into the civilization around them. And they pray. And they pray long hours into the night. Again, Derek Prince, he says this, prayer is the most powerful spiritual weapon we possess. It has no limitation. It's a long-range weapon that can sneak in and take out the enemy. As a missile, it locks onto a target. It can be launched from great distances away. There is no limitation in time or distance. I need to ask you, When you think of what I'm saying right now, every one of us has two kind of spheres. You've got your personal sphere, and then you've got your collective church sphere, if you're a part of this church family. Personally, if what I'm saying is true, that there are two realms that exist, what you can see with your eyes and what you can't see with your eyes, and that the way we tap into that piece which you can't see with your eyes to move the things you can see with your eyes is through collective fervent prayer, I need to ask what's happening in your life that needs overcoming. I need to ask what grief is in your life right now. I I need to ask what challenges you're seeing. Because if this text is true, what it means is it's more than you can see with your eyes. There's a spiritual reality that we're about to tap into that we'll see angels are moving behind the scenes. Some of us, we labor incorrectly. What we do when we face the challenges in our life personally is we begin to get together and we make a checklist of what we have to do, how we need to fix ourselves, correct ourselves, move forward, and we don't realize there's a deeper thing taking place. And the first move has to be to prayer, and when our first move isn't prayer, it's a reality check for us that something is not right in our understanding of how this world works. And then what happens is when our first move is not prayer, we realize after a long time, at some point, that we're not getting very far in overcoming the challenges in our life as Christians. Same problems seem to keep their, poking their head up until finally we're brought in desperation to prayer. Not only what challenges are you facing, but what challenges is the church facing today? What challenges and pressures are coming? The way Herod persecuted the church, what, what's happening to the church today? It's there, and are we actually praying about it? Insight number two, God has means of provision far beyond our wildest imagination. The church fervently prays. Number two, God has means of provision far beyond our wildest imagination. Chapter 12, verse 6 to 11. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring Peter out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. This is amazing. The church prays, and an angel gets sent to help Peter. An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. He went out and followed him. Though he, uh, he did not know that what, he, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left them. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. God has means of provision far beyond our wildest imaginations. The church prays fervently. There was a physical problem. James was killed. Their leader was in prison. They pray. They don't know how they're going to get through this. They have no power. They have no ability to do this. There was no human way around this. What was the best means they could have come up with as humans? Put together a little militia and storm the Roman prison cell? That would just get them all killed. See, Herod had four guards. What would have been normal for Herod at the time was one guard. You chain the prisoner to the guard using handcuffs. That's one. He had four, four times the security. There was no way anyone was getting Peter out of this unless God has means of provision that we have no idea about. The Lord sends an angel. He, he, he covers the eyes of the guards. He opens the doors of the cell. Peter comes out. There's no human way around it, but God has other means that we don't understand fully. There's a story in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6. Elijah, he's up on the mountain in, Mount, uh, in, in Israel. He's on a mountain, and the enemy forces are attacking him, and Elijah's up on top all by himself. He's got one servant with him. He sees all the enemies of God coming towards him like a big military, and the, the helper to Elijah, he's scared. He says, what do we do? I don't know what we should do right now. When the servant of the man, chapter 6 of 2 Kings, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elijah says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. With the eyes, Elisha and his young servant, all they could see were the enemy hordes coming to kill them. Once the spiritual blinders were removed and they could see in reality, he realized that those who were with them, who were standing ready to attack, were far greater. The angelic forces were far greater than the physical forces on the other side. Elisha didn't die that day, by the way. Good question for you. If you knew that when you came into this room, angels lined the walls and lined the aisles, how would your worship change? Here's a question for you. Do they? See, when, when you read Scripture correctly, and you begin to understand the way the spiritual world works around you. 
and, and you begin to understand this God who knows you and loves you, who rejoices in the proclamation of his word, who desires Christians to not be living in the same problems over and over again, but actually has infused us with the power of the Spirit to understand Scripture and pray kingdom blessing into the life of the church. He desires that. And when we come in here, we have no expectation of anything. We think we're going through just come here and the next TED Talk. Meanwhile, the angels around here They know what's actually taking place, and they're inviting us. We're being invited into it. What are angels? This is a story about an angel. God sending an angel. Hebrew Hebrew chapter 1, verse 14. Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? See, Christians have to always remember we never battle alone. No matter what the hurdle is before us, no matter how bleak the circumstance looks, if you're a follower of Christ and it looks like the world is against you for a moment or the world is against the church or the world looks like it's just bombarding your personal life and you're saying, this tangled knot of a mess that I call my life, it's so knotted up, I I physically don't know how to undo it. See, if you knew as a Christian that you have solutions to your problems that are unavailable to people who aren't Christians because God has given you the Holy Spirit and he has angelic help to help break down the problems that are before you because he's for you. He's for you as a Christian. He desires to see you overcome those things. Then we might pray a little differently. We might act a little differently. Now, what am I not saying? This is not the word of faith. Let me make sure I clarify that. There's a movement within Christianity today, within American Christianity today, called the Word of Faith Movement. The Word of Faith Movement basically misrepresents Scripture. And it says this, if you're not seeing victory in your life, it's because you're not praying hard enough. The problems in your life are simply that you are not a good enough prayer warrior. That's not the case. Let me remind you of this, this, this Scripture we're reading today. It started with James being killed. Okay? So, sometimes... In the life of a Christian and in the life of the church, real tragedy, real hardship, real difficult things that the Lord does not give you what we call victory in the eyes of the world come into your life. Sometimes the gates of a prison cell get burst off their hinges and Peter's left out of prison. In the midst of both of these, Christians are called to pray fervently and expectantly that the Lord is working in ways that we cannot see. And no matter the cost, no matter what it means, Christians live with a belief in Christ. You are working something far beyond my wildest imagination. The tools you have at your disposal are better than the ones I have at mine, and I'm clinging to you. How do you pray? Go back to that Heavenly Man book, Brother Yoon. There was a moment where he tells a story. They were, had a, a prayer vigil that lasted all night. You know, the Chinese church, we have so much to learn from them. I, before Brother Yoon, I was watching a, a documentary story recently on the Chinese church, and an American missionary went out to go train them on theology, right? Because they needed training on theology from uh, the American seminary students who had all the answers. So they go out there, and uh, he gives his teaching And then he prays with them for a few hours. And then at about 10 o'clock at night, he begins to get tired. There seemed to be a break in the prayer. He goes to bed. When he wakes up at 5 in the morning at this, in the hills, hidden, about 200 Chinese Christians, he wakes up about 5 in the morning and he hears wailing taking place. He walks outside. He asks, what's going on? All the Chinese Christians are out there. He says, oh, we've been praying all night for you. The American seminary student quickly learned he had nothing to teach this church. He had everything to learn from them. Prayed all night. 
Brother Yoon tells a story. He was in one of those prayer meetings. They'd been praying for a couple days when four men came up to the crowd threatening to kill the four pastors who were leading the, the, um, the prayer vigil that night. This was in China a few decades ago. And they were threatening to kill, and it was very clear that they were possessed. They, there was some spiritual world taking place, and they prayed for this man. They desired to see this not happen. They desired to see the, the evil that had come into the crowd kind of blocked and stopped. And for these people to come to know Jesus, they prayed all night for it, prayed all types of prayer. Once you learn about prayer, you know there's many different types of prayer, many ways you can pray, many ways to call on the name of God. No success, nothing. Finally, at the end of the day, they were still being harassed by these four men who were possessed. They just sat down, and Brother Yoon, he says, at that moment, we realized we couldn't do anything. We were just powerless. We were frustrated. God was not answering our prayers. And so they just opened up their hands like this. They said, God, we can't do anything. All night of praying. At that moment, whatever was demonizing those four men left them, and they were of sane mind. The Christian pastors immediately stood up, shared the gospel, and these men received Jesus right then and there. Brother Yoon reflects on that, says this, we learned a lesson that morning. When we arrive at the end of our own strength, it is not defeat, but the start of tapping into God's boundless resources. It is when we are weak that we are strong in God. I think we have something to learn. How do you overcome the challenges in your life? If you're a Christian, the answer should not be the same as the next, as the next non-Christian next to you. There should be a very real difference in the way you see, diagnose, and solve the problems in your life compared to the non-Christian next to you. There is a rooting in prayer and holding open of all the problems of our life with a deep abiding joy in Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you that says, Jesus, you're in control and whatever comes, I worship you. You get all the glory in my life. I'm not out to make a name for myself. I'm not out to accumulate wealth for myself. Whatever you do with my life, it's all for you. I wanna be faithful and I'm giving you this day in, day out, trusting the Lord can do more with this than you could. Trusting the Lord has ways of accomplishing victory that you could not see even when sometimes it looks like it's 10 steps backwards. The Lord has means at his disposal far beyond our own. Insight number three, let me bring us to a close on this. Christians hold greater authority than Herod. Christians hold greater authority than Herod. Herod was the ruler at the time. In terms of, with their eyes, who had the most authority? It was Herod. He was the one who imprisoned James. He was the one who killed James. There was no punishment for the unjust killing of James for Herod. He had all authority in the eyes of people in Israel. Not so. I'm going to skip forward in chapter 12 a little bit. Let's jump to verses 20 through 24. Now Herod was, ang Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting. Listen to how they were praising Herod. The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord, here we are again, angelic solutions to earthly problems. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last but the word of God increased and multiplied. 
In history, the account of Herod's death is given in two places. Acts chapter 12 and in the historian Josephus' writings. Josephus tells a few more details about what happened on this day. It's quite interesting. Not only did he receive praise, he actually had put on all his greatest clothing. He paraded himself as if he were a god in front of everybody. And all of a sudden, pains came over him in his stomach, so much so that he was crippled in the middle of this event. This is Josephus recording the same event. And he realized he was dying. He became so afraid that no one would give him glory after his death that he told his men, as soon as I die, gather the most important men from across the kingdom, bring them here and kill them as an offering to establish the legacy of my own life. You think this man had a God complex? You know what one of the most common ways to die in that day, in that area was? They found, because of science, looking back at the, the decomposed bodies, stomach worms. Crippling stomach pain. Now, here comes a ruler who's bent on persecuting the church. He's killed James, he's put Peter in prison, in the eyes of everyone around, he's got all the power. Who holds the power? Herod? Or the tiny Christian church praying in their room, calling on Jesus Christ? Apparently, it was the church. This story begins with James being killed, Herod with all the power, and the church looking like they're in trouble, ends with Herod being killed, and the church multiplying and increasing greatly. And in the middle of it, we find a tiny church praying fervently for the Spirit of God to move. I ask you again, who holds the authority and the power? There are two realms, and the realm that Christians are called to operate in is in both of them. When we look out at how there are enemies of the Lord who desire to see the church squelched, to see the voice of the church made small, to see Christians' lives harassed and hindered, we recognize that those challenges are not falling on deaf ears with the Lord, but actually we hold a greater authority than any authority that might try to hold the church back. Who was really ruling in Israel? Was it Herod who sat on the throne? Was it Herod who held true authority in his pomp and his rulership? The answer is no. Church, we get this wrong. If you understood how much authority you held when you're on your knees at home in prayer, we would pray very differently. Christians hold more authority than the greatest authorities we look here. This week, the Chicago Tribune ran nearly a front-page article uh, that was, to put it lightly, a hit piece on Moody Bible Institute. Did anybody read this? You read the piece that was written on Moody Bible Institute this week in the Trib? Go ahead, look this up. What they were doing was they were trying to, in a sense, in a very different way. Is this persecution like this? No. We're not experiencing the same type of persecution that Herod experienced in this, in this. That might come one day. Many Christians are. But this week, the press in Chicago ran a piece on Moody, trying to squelch Moody because of their position on LGBTQ issues. Trying to just stop it right then and there. And now this is a paper that goes out and has actual implications. Now there's a lawsuit coming against Moody. This is the real world, right? These are the real world that we live in. And now Christians who are holding to a biblical worldview, who love the Lord, who desire to love people tremendously and, and demonstrate sacrificial love and service to the nations and put on display the love of Jesus and, and teach specifically who God is and what he's done for us and never waver on the truth of God. All types of pressure bend Bend, bend. The church has felt this increasingly so and will continue to feel it. 
Who holds the authority? The pressures that want to put it on the church? The pressures that want to make you say something different than what the Bible says with clarity? No, the Christian holds the authority. You're a kingdom of priests. You've been granted that authority to move nations, to shake nations, to establish the kingdom here in Chicago. One of the things we pray for in this city is for revival. Do you know why we pray for that? What is revival? Revival is when masses of people come to faith in Jesus Christ all at the same time. It happens in pockets all around Christian history. In Chicago, it happened back in the early 1900s under D.L. Moody and his preaching. Why do we pray for revival? Because when people have their life changed by Jesus Christ, that transforms nations. It's when people who are rebels to God come to faith in Jesus that they begin to see the reality of what's taking place and establish the love of Christ all around them. See, if we understood the power we had, we would pray a little differently. I, I want to call us to something right here. I want to call us to pray in a way that actually says we get this passage. This year, when we started off the year, you've heard me say this over and over on repeat now at this point, but I need you to understand what we're doing here. When we kicked off 2021, we began a prayer movement. We pray as a church every day from 12 to 12.30 over Zoom. Men and women across offices, across the city are tuning in from 12 to 12.30 to pray with each other fervently. Why do we pray daily? Well, because we actually believe what we're saying here. We actually believe that there is a hope beyond what we can see with our eyes, but we can tap into it through prayer. Does this mean that we're wet noodle Christians, that all we do is just hunker down and we don't really have to say anything and, and we're just kind of squishy and we just pray and never do anything? No, we pray and we act. We pray and we move. We pray we're on the move. We pray and we love. But until we pray, there's nothing else to do. So often we, we move first, pray second, just for help in what we already started doing. Church has to pray first. I want to invite you into this. What we're doing is not just nothing. We're not just praying for fun. We're gathering to move the nations, to shake things up, to see revival happening in the city. We pray every week back in that hallway over there on Sunday mornings at 8.15. Church, I want to call you into this. Look at this, verse 5, 12.5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Is this the kind of church we are or not? It's really easy. We're either this or we're not. <laughs> we have good days. And then honestly, we have a lot of days where we don't reflect this that well. I want to call you into it. If we want to see something happen in this city, if we want to see something happen in each other's lives, it's going to happen through a base of prayer. And I want to call you into that for the glory of God and for the joy of his people. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we do love you. We recognize the hardships that we face as Christians, God, are not falling on deaf ears with you. We recognize, God, that there is a spiritual war that takes place that if we had eyes to see it, God, it would make the reality of what we see with our eyes make a whole lot more sense. God, I want to take a moment right now and pray over the very real grief and pain that we live through as Christians before we talk about pressures on the big C church. I think of homes. I think of families. I think of marriages. I think of relationships. I think of pains and people that have all sorts of pains that happen in this life. The conversation we've been on for a long time, the conversation of race and racism and the pain of the reality that racism exists in the real world in meaningful ways.
saw that again this week, coming from within the church. God, there's real work to be done. Real pains. And God, you are a God who meets our greatest challenges with the hope of the gospel. The solutions that we can never imagine with our, you know, our greatest scheming. God, make us a prayer-filled people. Make us an Acts chapter 12 church. In the name of Jesus, we pray.